We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 50 as we return to our fall series in Isaiah, which in God's providence was helped by Pastor Mitchell's sermon last week from Isaiah chapter 6, in which he referenced the year that King Uzziah died. Um, yes, I am aware that we have looked at Isaiah chapter 50 before. Yes, I am aware that you have notes in your margin from that time. Um, but in the meantime, uh, we have grown, and I pray um, that uh, the Lord will yet speak to us again, perhaps reinforcing things that need to be reinforced, uh, perhaps exposing new things that need to be exposed. We're in the second half of Isaiah. The first half of Isaiah recounts um, basically 35 to 40 years of ministry, roughly between the reigns of King Ahaz on the one hand and King Hezekiah on the other hand. Both of them encountered storms beyond their comprehension and control. On the one hand, it was two neighboring kingdoms that had allied themselves against King Ahaz and were trying to force him into an alliance against the threats of Assyria. King Ahaz was wringing his hands and he did not know what to do. He did not know where to turn. He did not know who to call. Isaiah said, you should call upon the Lord who is your refuge and your strength. Forty years later, Hezekiah faced a similar problem. Now the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, was encamped against Jerusalem. Uh, the army encamped as far as the eye could see in a manner of speaking. And Hezekiah, too, was terrified. This was a challenge beyond his comprehension and beyond his control. He did not know where to turn. He did not know who to call. Isaiah says, call upon the Lord. For he is your refuge and your strength. Hezekiah looked at all of his options. And having no more options, he said, well, what do I have to lose as long as I can have peace in my day? And so he prayed. Even the prayers of faith directed to the God, the prayers of fear directed to the God of faithfulness are effective. And so now, in the second half of Isaiah's ministry, he is seeking to declare to Israel, contrary to everything you may think, our God's response to our faithlessness. And our frailty is tenderness, tenderness, and comfort, comfort. That is not, does not come without its conviction, but it does provide hope in a day of trouble. So read with me Isaiah chapter 50. Thus says the Lord... Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? 
Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, the sea is dried up. I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. I know, it's a strange word. But this is the word of the Lord's comfort to us in a tumultuous day. So let's go to him in prayer. So Father, we do come and we do pray that you would meet us and that you would speak to us. We pray that in confidence. What we need is not so much that you will speak, but that we will hear. Not so much that you will guide, but that we will follow. For that, O God, we need your Spirit. And so, as your children who have been washed in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray, grant us your Spirit, that together with him we may hear And we may obey, for you are the living God, and we are your children. And so we come to you. Amen. So, it has been in the news. It has been consuming the news for the last several weeks. Harvey. We watched as Harvey came ashore and then went back and got a running start again. And then stalled and then went back and got a running start again. I was watching a one of those time-lapse videos of a city camera somewhere in Houston watching a bayou as it 
rose and then sank and then rose and the grass disappeared under the water and then the beautiful bike path disappeared under the water and then the road next to it disappeared under the water and then the overpass disappeared under the water. It was really stunning. And of course, now all of us are thinking about Irma as she makes landfall south of Florida. Many of us in fact, no people who are in the storm's path. And we're worried about them. Many of us have sister, we have sister churches in the storm's paths, and so we are praying about them. In the midst of all of that, tucked in the margins and in the footnotes of the news, we've heard about an 8.1 earthquake off the coast of the Mexican state of Oaxaca with whom, some of you may or may not know, we have a personal connection in our congregation. So our heart hurts. We see pictures of rubble. We see pictures of people digging through the rubble looking for survival, survivors. Some of you may or may not be aware of the disaster of social and political dimensions that is unfolding in Myanmar as thousands and thousands of people are fleeing their homes in the face of persecution. No, these are not Christians. These are a Muslim minority in a majority Buddhist nation. I pray that nonetheless our heart breaks. Some of us have had little time to consider Harvey or Irma or the earthquake in Mexico, never mind the disaster unfolding in Myanmar because we have been enduring storms of our own. Some of you over the last 48 hours. Some of you over the last week. Some over the last month. Some over a summer. Some over a year. More than once in the past month in the past couple months, multiple times in the past year, I have been engaged in conversations in which people are deeply confused. People are deeply disturbed and deeply disoriented. One of these was in the waiting room of a critical care unit here in town. And the wife looked at me and she said, why is this happening? I can't do this anymore. I don't understand it. It's not supposed to hurt this bad. People are deeply confused and disoriented by circumstances well beyond their comprehension and well beyond their control. If God is so good. Why does life hurt so bad? If God really loves me, if God really promised to be with me, to protect me, then why am I going through this? Has he forgotten his promise? Has he become too busy with something else? In the face of 
natural and national and personal disasters, this question often comes up. But it also comes up in the face of real or anticipated personal disaster. The phone rings and we get a message that we did not expect, we did not see see coming. And we find ourselves reeling as though from a sucker punch. And as the storms approach, whether physical storms as we're seeing on the news or emotional storms or personal storms or career storms or whatever they are, we pray. We pray. We cry out, which is right. Oh, Lord, protect our house. Oh, Lord, protect our home. Oh, Lord, protect our husband, protect our wife, protect our family, protect our neighbors. But the question is this, do we understand the storm? Do we even know the Lord of the storm to whom we think we're praying? Do we know what we're praying for? I had a dear friend years ago who found himself in a very difficult marriage. He found himself having been exiled from his house and in speaking with him he said, I just pray to be left alone. Well, the Lord answered the prayer, didn't he? It's not unlike the situation that Israel found themselves in in Isaiah chapter 6 as we were reminded last year. They had just been experiencing and enjoying 52 years, 52 years of stability, a growing economy, peace, prosperity. It was the greatest era of peace and prosperity in the kingdom's history since the days of Solomon. Now think about it, 52 years, if we count backwards, that would put us at about 1955 or something like that. Exactly. 52 years they experienced stability and peace and prosperity. And then the king got sick. And then the king died. And as you know, that immediately throws a nation into times of instability and uncertainty and vulnerability. People are afraid and people are concerned what's going to happen. And it's in that context that Isaiah then walked into the temple and beheld the glory of God. And just in the nick of time too, because about that time, two storms hit Israel. It was the storm of these, the storm in the days of Ahaz, and then later the storm in the days of Hezekiah, and that left the nation battered and exposed a weak and decaying foundation. And people began to realize the days of the kingdom are numbered. I don't think we can survive this one. 
It's not unlike what some of our neighbors in the Caribbean are thinking now in the wake of Hurricane Irma, now as Hurricane Jose bears down on them. Can we bear it? And this is not unlike what Israel was thinking. And immediately they begin to think, has God forgotten his promise? Has he abandoned us? Has he, has he hung us out to dry? We're not unlike the Israelites. Instinctively, we love to proclaim the goodness of God when times are good. But we immediately feel as though we've been abandoned when times get tough. Notice what's happening here. Our passage, verse 50, chapter, uh, chapter 50, verse 1, opens in response to an accusation. Thus says the Lord in response to this accusation, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? You accuse me of having cut off your mother. You accuse me of having divorced your mother. Show me the certificate of divorce, he says. Or... Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? You accuse me of selling you out. Show me the receipt. He says. Because these things can't be happening to us according to the logic of Israel. Because unless it is of course that the Lord has forgotten us. Unless it is of course that the Lord has abandoned us. The Lord said in the days of Abraham, I will love you. You will be my people and I will be your God. We heard it. You said, O oh God, that you would love us, that we would be your people, that you would be our God. You even guaranteed it with an oath. You said, O oh God, that you would protect us. That's why we trust you. We've been faithful. Where have you gone? We find ourselves saying some of those very same things. We find ourselves thinking, for example, after all that I've done, how could you let this happen? I did everything right. Why didn't you come through? Whether it was loss of home or loss of loved ones or loss of job or loss of income, loss opportunity, missed promotion. Is God even in control? We expect and so demand God to love and protect us on our terms. To heal, to provide on our timetables, to up to... to provide in a way that's up to our standards on our terms. And as we're trying to cultivate the garden of our lives, we order big old truckloads of grace and peace. And when the truck comes and starts backing down the driveway, we say, wait, wait, don't crush my driveway. But by the nature of the case, we need his help and protection precisely because we do not understand the full dimensions of the danger we are in. 
How is it that we got here? The Lord continues through his messenger Isaiah. You have no certificate. You have no no receipt that I have sold you because, behold, look, for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Man, that is offensive. For our iniquities, for our transgressions, it is so deeply offensive to us. We're we're good people after all. We're from Lake Wobegon. We're all above average. We're all good looking. We're not bad people. How can you possibly say this? But we have to understand something. The dynamic here is not transactionary. He is not saying, because you did that, I'm going to do this. It's not a tit for tat. It's not a quid pro quo. Rather, it's consequential. Because you have been trusting in that which could not deliver... It has landed you in a bad spot. Because you have invested your faith in that which cannot deliver, it has sold you out. It has left you hung out to dry in the wilderness. It is not the God of steadfast and unchanging faithfulness. It is the iniquities and transgressions that in which you have trusted in place of Him. So what is that sin? That is to say, to use the language that some of our circles use, what is the sin beneath the sin? What is the sin beneath the iniquities and transgressions here? The sin from which grows these behaviors of Israel's idolatry and adultery. It's the sin that goes all the way back to the garden. It's the sin of commodifying God of seeing God as a, as a repository of goods and services that I can leverage for my own good. Of crafting God in our own image, of fitting Him to, to the dimensions of our dreams and imaginations and aspirations. Of entering into a mercenary contract with a covenant God. A mercenary contract that says, we'll do this as long as you do that. We'll give you burnt cows as long as you give us peace in our day. Prosperity for my family. Health and safety for my kids. Brothers and sisters, it's the consumer's faith. It's one that comes natural to us as North American Christians. Because we're trained from the earliest days to be consumers of goods and services. The product looks good, promises good value for the price, only have to go to church once a week, and includes great support services. I'll buy it. And if it doesn't deliver, well, I'll just return it and exchange it for another. 
Brothers and sisters, that's not covenant. That's mercenary. Our difficult experiences, the storms that are beyond our comprehension and control, expose the bedrock of our actual and functional faith. Our responses are the symptoms of that faith, for good or for ill. So let's start putting our fears and our disappointments and our despondency to the test as we run it through what I call the Isaiah 50 grid. So today, as you come in, do you find yourself fearful of what the next days or weeks are going to hold, whether in terms of the weather or in terms of your career or in terms of family, in terms of children? Do you find yourself disappointed for what has happened in the last 48 hours, a week, a month? Do you find yourself having gone through so many repeated disappointments that you find yourself wrestling with despondency? Then ask yourself this. Are you there, fearful, disappointed, or despondent in your circumstances because either God has forgotten and forsaken you Or, because you have sought to leverage other means beside or in addition to God to secure for yourself what God alone has promised. Is is that what's disappointing you? And in fact, having sought to leverage other means to secure for yourself what God has promised, are you also failing to recognize and respond to your God when he does show up. Because notice what happens. Verse 2, when I came, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? There were people there. The Lord came. The Lord came to Ahaz in in the person of his messenger Isaiah. And Ahaz, because of his fear and because of his having put faith in something else, in this case military strategies and might, dismissed the answer of God and the provision of God out of hand. Having sought to leverage other means to secure for ourselves what God alone has promised, are we failing to recognize and respond to our God when he shows up? As we get into that, as we begin to try to discern which of those things is going on, we instinctively assume that is certainly not because of anything that I've done, Since we so often assume our own faithfulness and so instinctively accuse others and even God of failing to be there for us and answer our prayers and having forgotten us, what do we need to do as we seek to discern what's going on? Well, we need to remember the Lord's name. When I came, when I called, says the Lord... This is who you're talking to. This is Yahweh here. 
This is the one who made promises. This is the one who keeps promises. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember that? I am that one. I am the one who repeatedly rescued you from your enemies. Do you remember? That's who I am, Yahweh. Is my hand now shortened? Have I become weak? We need to remember his name. And more to the point, we need to remember the glory of the mighty acts that are attached to that name. Brothers and sisters, it is easy to forget that. As we heard this morning, we are indeed gospel amnesiacs. That is to say, we forget moment by moment, day by day, week by week, the mighty acts of God's faithfulness and love, most gloriously seen in the person of Jesus Christ, not exclusively seen there. Because our God is mighty. We see it most gloriously in Jesus Christ, but we see it throughout the history of redemption. Our God lives. Our God acts. When you hear the name of the Lord, you don't hear just a theological principle. You hear the name of one who lives and acts. In this world, in our lives, in this place. And so we need to consider the evidence. Is there any evidence that he is no longer able? Is there any evidence that his arm is shortened? We need to examine the evidence. We need to listen to the testimony. So we see verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know. And as we're reading this, we're beginning to wonder, now is this Isaiah speaking? Who is this? Well, this is, of course, one of the servant songs that we hear. And as the song progresses, we realize, okay, this is the servant This is the one that is beginning to emerge through the prophecy of Isaiah as the one who is promised, who will take upon himself our circumstances and our weakness to accomplish for us what we refuse to accomplish for ourselves, never mind whether or not we're able. The question is this, then, as we enter into this song, is this Israel or is this an individual person? And as it progresses, we realize this is an individual person. The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. And what does he hear? And how do we, he hears the command. Verse 5, the Lord God opened my ear and I was not rebellious. Do you remember that Israel heard the Lord, saw the Lord's provision in the wilderness, and they rebelled? Remember, that becomes um, an event of huge proportions that they refer to, again, Massah and Meribah. The bitterness of hearing without faith and rebelling. And here in verse 5, the Lord God opens the ear of this person who is not rebellious, does not turn backward, but instead gives his back back to those who strike. 
Notice the activity there. He gives his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He does not hide his face from disgrace or spitting. As counterintuitive as the appearances, uh, appearances notwithstanding, in the faithfulness of this servant to hear, to not rebel or not resist, but to actually obey, you see, we find the way of rescue, the way of salvation. What is being said here is that the methods of this servant are the strategies for life. As absurd as that sounds. Listen. Do not resist. Do not rebel. But rest. Obey. Act. According to God's wisdom. Not according to your sight. Rather than frantically working to avoid all pain and difficulty of which there are myriad real opportunities and varieties. Never mind the opportunities for fear and difficulty that we imagine. Rather than frantically spending all of our time and energy and resources, money, to, re to avoid and resist all of that. Rather, set your mind on hearing and obeying the wisdom of God, the strength of God, the courage of God, the stamina of God. For through all these circumstances, this is the foundation for what our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church call a theology of suffering. Our God is faithful. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, He is strong he is able. He is present. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, this theology of suffering that is built on this fact is an aspect of Christian discipleship that is fatally lacking among us as North American Christians. Brothers and sisters, the day is coming sooner rather than later that we must rediscover what our brothers in the persecuted church know so well this theology of suffering with rejoicing and faith. And so, also we pray, provide a job, provide a house, provide a, house, a, a spouse, provide a pastor, provide healing, provide restoration. But the Lord answers out of the riches of His wisdom and not according to the poverty of our understanding. And that's the testimony of the, of, the, of the servant. Why? On what basis? Look, the Lord God helps me. It wasn't because of me. The Lord God helps me. Even in Gethsemane, we see Jesus praying, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. You're a fool, Jesus, Pilate says. Do you not know that I have the power to snap my fingers and take your life? And Jesus says, I know far more about the power you have and where it comes from than you will ever know or imagine. I will not be disgraced, 
And therefore, I set my face like flint, an echo of Luke chapter 9. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near. And and Romans 8 echoes this. The one who vindicates me is near. So who will contend with me? Let's stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Behold, it's the Lord God who helps me. Who declares me guilty. And so we hear the testimony. We see the evidence. Indeed, that is why we have the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Because it is the evidence that the living God has vindicated the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah says, okay then, now then, who among you fears the Lord? Who among you knows the Lord? Who among you hears and obeys the voice of his servant? Choose today, Joshua says it, whom you will serve. The Lord who has shown himself faithful? Or will you continue to burn torches and walk by the light of your fire and trust in all with which you can equip yourself. Because if you choose to walk by the light of your own fire and by the torches that you have kindled, they will leave you disappointed. They will hang you out to dry. They will leave you abandoned in the wilderness. But the steadfast love of the Lord will, in fact, show itself true. And so, as the storms gather, we pray. We pray, Lord, protect us. As the tornadoes threaten to come across and destroy our houses, blowing it right off of foundations, we pray, Lord, protect. And then we come back and we find the house leveled, blown right off its foundation. Has the Lord not heard? Has he turned a deaf ear? Has he abandoned us? Has he betrayed his promise to us? Has he gotten out of Dodge, protecting himself, and left us here to survive the best we can? When we get back and we begin to assess the damage, we begin to look at what has happened. Lo and behold, what do we discover? Discover that the foundation itself was damaged. Rot and decay was there you had no idea about. Totally oblivious to. The Lord loves us far more and has far greater and far more intimate, a far more detailed understanding of our condition and our circumstances and what needs to be done than we do, perhaps than we ever will. It's our quite limited 
understanding and our quite limited assessment of our circumstances that so often blinds us and so often deafens us and makes us resistant to the ways of God and the wisdom of God and the provision of God when he shows up. So who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon him. So, Father, we pray that you would grant us the courage